Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com national editor Matt Myers. We have some news today. Adam Adovino just went to the Yankees right before the show. Clearly on this show, we're talking about any Adam Adovino news. He's not the only Rocky who's going to be headed east. DJ LeMahieu is going to Yankee Stadium, and there's some really interesting numbers on his insane home road splits. Bryce Harper's hitting coach in Washington, Kevin Long, talked about how launch angle may have impacted his season, so we're going to dig into that. Marcelo Zuna may be ready for a re-breakout, and also some StatCast news, a slight change to one of our important metrics. We'll dig into that and tell you who benefits. First, Adam Adovino to the Yankees. Three years, $27 million. I apologize in advance for all of the Babe Ruth questions he's going to have to answer wearing pinstripes. Uh, but listen, obviously, like we, we have talked about Adovino a lot on this show. Um, he is a you know, New York City native, grew up in Brooklyn, lives in Manhattan. There's a quote I just saw from the New York Post uh, from his dad, who basically said that it was very important for him to play the Yankees. At the end, playing for the Yankees was very important to him. Do you think that's why no team topped three years and $27 million? Because my first thought was well, the Mets should have totally done that. But if he wanted to be in pinstripes, then he wants to be in pinstripes. It's a, kind of an unknowable. I agree. The Mets could use another bullpen arm. Um, and that's a, a reasonable price for Adovino, who was absurd last year. Granted, he was pretty bad in 2017. Yeah. He was very good in 2016. So he's had a bit of a rocky track record. I mean, I would, I am betting on. Adovino being an effective pitcher for the next couple of years. So um, I think this is a, a fantastic deal for the Yankees, whose bullpen is now ridiculous. Really, really good. Uh, you know, Very quickly, for the three of you who listen to the show who may not know the Adam Adovino story, uh, he's been a Rocky for the last like seven years. He got hurt and then uh, didn't have a very good 2017, was lo- left off the playoff roster. And then last winter, rented out a, uh, an empty storefront from his father-in-law in uh, Harlem in Upper Manhattan, got all the latest technology, spent a week at Driveline, like all of the next generation stuff, uh, worked with pitch design, came back and had an unbelievable season this year. Uh, last, this last year, 243 ERA, struck out 112 guys in 77 and two-thirds innings. Uh, we had uh, 358 pitchers who faced 200 hitters. His weighted on base was eighth. His expected weighted on base was sixth. He was absolutely dominant, and I think that, uh, you know, as you said, look at the guys he's joining in the Yankee bullpens. Here's their depth chart at the moment. Araldis Chapman, Dellen Batances, Zach Britton, who they just re-signed, Adam Adovino, Chad Green, who never seems to get enough credit, uh, Tommy Canely at the moment, you know, he had a great 2017, not so much last year, may still be traded. Uh, Jonathan Holder is a name that I don't think people pay enough attention to. He was really good. And then there's guys, you know, like maybe Domingo Herman is down there, or Luis Sessa, or Adams, or Stephen Tarpley. They are loaded with talent in that bullpen. It's unfair. It's and it's it's a real contrast, in particular, with Boston. Yeah. Um, and we saw, I mean, we saw it in the postseason, right? Like it was not, it was not a, it was definitely like the big difference between the two teams. I think a lot of the, a big reason why a lot of people were, were picking the Red Sox to lose to the Yankees, picking the Yankees to beat the Red Sox in the ALDS was because, well, we've seen how bullpens dominate in the postseason. The Yankees bullpen is so much better. It didn't happen that way, but man, you look at the Red Sox bullpen but, right now, which... But, I, but who dominated in that bullpen? Like, that's, the, that's the important part. Joe Kelly is gone. He's true. a Dodger. Craig Kimbrell, dominate, I guess, but obviously he's a big part of it. Free agent at the moment. Nathan Nivaldi, who's back, but he's going to be a starter. You know, they had Chris Sale coming out of the, the rotation. Yeah, to their credit, the Red Sox deserve credit for sort of taking advantage of the extra off days and using Ivaldi uh, and Sale as relievers. But man, you look at the Red Sox bullpen right now, you've got Ryan Brazier is probably their closer, or Matt Barnes, Heath Hembry, Tyler Thornburg, Brandon Workman, Brian Johnson, Hector Velasquez. Like, I mean, like, you made, their up, best you made guy, up half those names. <laughs> their best guy would be like the sixth guy in the Yankees bullpen. I, I mean, to be fair, Brazier and Barnes were pretty good last year. I don't 
know that I would want them over like anybody in the Reds in the Yankee bullpen. Would you uh, take them? Would you take them ahead of Rolls Chapman? No. Would you take them ahead of D- Dylan Matanzas? No. Zach Britton? No. Adam Ottavino? No. Chad Green? No. <laughs> Tommy Canley? Yes. Or Conley? Yes. Always... Canley. Canley. Uh, yes, he was terrible last year. Okay. Yes. So we had to go to the, the best guy in the Red Sox would be the sixth best guy in the Yankee yeah, bullpen right, right now. I mean, now the Red Sox, the pressure for them to bring back Kimbrel is going to be enormous. Is it a hot take? I don't know. Maybe it is that Ottavino is going to be better than Kimbrel in 2019. I think it's at least a 50-50 shot. No, I mean, the thing about Ottavino is he's not young. You know, he, was no. a late, he was a late bloomer. I uh, was drafted out of Northeastern in 2006 by the Cardinals. He's 33 now. So it's not he's not that young, and I think that's part of why maybe he didn't get as much as maybe some people thought because of, A, the sort of rocky track record the last couple of years. Uh, no pun intended. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and the age. But, I mean, his slider... What he turned his slider into, it's it's a wiffle ball pitch. It, I'm really interested. Well, I've got I got a lot of thoughts on this. Um, the first thought is, you know, the Yankees are kind of the perfect fit for this kind of guy, right? Like this is a team that has very famously gotten away from fastballs. Uh, last year, they threw 30% cutters and sliders, most in the American League, second most in Major League Baseball behind. Wait for it. Colorado. So that's probably a big part of that was out of, you know, um, so that's going to be interesting. But also the Yankees, I don't think they get enough credit for like how famously analytical they've become. Like, I'm taking this from a piece that was in The Athletic a couple months ago by Mark Currig and, you know, Sarah. So they went and they tried to figure out the size of the analysts for all 30 teams. Right. The Yankees. That's in, the analyst department, not the, not the literal analysts. Uh, either way. The Yankees, in their estimation, had 20 people working in their anal- in their uh, statistical analyst department. That was the most in baseball tied with the Dodgers. And they had the Rockies at four, which was one of the lower numbers. And I think that's part of the reason why Adovino did all this work on his own. And now I'm kind of fascinated to know, like, will the Yankees just have someone dedicated to like making sure his slider is where it needs to be every single day? The flip side of that coin is, I can't wait for Frisbee sliders going to Gary Sanchez. That is going to be, I don't know, painful or entertaining, depending on your perspective. That's going to be a story. There is definitely some, also there's definitely something poetic uh, to call it back to this podcast where Adam, Adam Adovino was on a few weeks ago and said, I'd strike out Babe Ruth every time up. Oh, really? Did he say that? I don't I don't remember hearing that. <laughs> <laughs> For him to uh, go side with the Yankees. There's something very poetic about it, and uh, it uh, it feels very appropriate, and it will certainly be it's, a storyline that will be beaten to death in spring training. W- spring training. No, when he has his introductory press conference, will that be the first question he's asked, or will it be the second question he's asked? Uh, I don't know. Maybe you should go to the press conference. <laughs> so you can ask him. <laughs> so, interestingly enough, he's not the only Rocky who is headed east. Uh, the Yankees also signed... DJ LeMahieu. And before we get into the serious analysis, let's start with some joke analysis. The Yankees have Adam Adovino, DJ LeMahieu, Troy Tulowitzki, Tommy Canely, and in the minors, Rex Brothers, who are all members of the 2014 Colorado Rockies who lost 85 games. It's just like the weirdest collection of guys to bring back to what's going to be a very good team five years later. Um, allow me to make some more suggestions. They should go trade for Tyler Chatwood, which might actually work from the Cubs. Uh, maybe they can get Charlie Culberson from Atlanta. Carlos Gonzalez is a free agent. Jorge De La Rosa is out there, and why not Franklin Morales? I'm just like naming some guys now. <laughs> Will and Rosario wants to come back to America. I want this 2014 Colorado team to completely reassemble like some sort of Voltron in the Bronx. It's uh, Mayhew, that was definitely one of the more surprising. Like most of the moves that have happened this offseason, you're sort of like, oh, like that. I sort of saw that coming. The Mayhew to the Yankees, I gotta say, I did not 
see was, that coming. Was that more or less surprising to you than Jed Lowry to the Mets? Because it's kind of the same idea, right? Like a veteran second baseman to a New York team that maybe didn't need one. The thing about Lowry is he actually has experience playing a lot of positions, and the Yankees yeah. are signing LeMahieu to be a ver- like a uh, utility guy. Granted, he's a very good second baseman. There's no reason to think he can't handle multiple positions, but he's never really done it. Whereas like Lowry has a lot weird. of Lowry has a lot of experience at second and third and shortstop earlier in his career. Whereas LeMay, who's basically only second base. He hasn't played another position since 2014. And you're right, maybe he can do it, but I don't know if he can do it. I mean, I guess I'd rather him than Miguel and Duhart at third base, but that's not a high bar to clear. And there's also, I mean, there's this talk that they don't really want to move Glaber Torres back to short. They see him as a second baseman. They want to keep him there. So then it's like, okay, well, are you really buying Troy Tillowitzki as your shortstop? Like, I mean, shh, I, I don't buy it for a second. And in which case, are you going to put LeMayu at shortstop, or are you no, going to put? He can't play shortstop. You're going to put uh, Torres at shortstop. So it's just there's a lot of posturing I'm, going on. Granted, they can still go sign Machado. I won't believe it. I won't believe he's I was not say, Yankee until he. I'm unconvinced that Tulitsky makes it out of spring training, and I'm unconvinced this takes them out of Machado. You could very easily sign Machado, trade Andujar to the Padres, call it a day. You know, like this doesn't have to be overcomplicated. They're going to trade Sonny Gray, which will cut a little bit of salary. They'll probably just dump him. You know, like yeah. anyone, you know, will take him for Tyler Chatwood. Maybe that's not actually going to yeah. happen. Um, Here's what's interesting to me about LeMahieu. He uh, was maybe the poster boy for enormous home road splits in Colorado. Just last year, uh, he had uh, a 317, 360, 433 at home. The most important part there is a 360 on base at home, 277 on the road. That's very, very bad. In his career with the Rockies, so nearly 3,800 plate appearances, 387 on base at home, a 311 on base on the road. That is, again, very bad. Uh, his career away OPS with the Rockies was 673. That's basically what Manny Margot and Ahmed Rosario did this last year. So you have lots of Yankee fans, I think, looking at those numbers and saying, well, this guy we just signed can't hit. We've seen him not hit when he's not in Coors Field, and he's going to come to Yankee Stadium and not hit. And I think we should have hopefully learned enough about Coors Field to know it's not that simple. Like, you you don't leave Coors Field and just become the guy you were on the road. Like, it's there's a lot of reasons for that, um, but it does seem there is a penalty on the road for just guys in Coors Field. And I, I've wrote, written about this a number of times over the years, um, but I think the most effective thing, and this is from 2015, so the numbers are slightly out of date, but the idea remains the same. At the time, I wrote that over the previous 10 seasons, the Rockies had scored the most runs in baseball at home, nearly 4,600 of them. In the same period, they had scored only 3,000 runs on the road, the fewest in baseball. And in order for both of those things to be true, either Coors Field would have to elevate baseball's worst offense to play like its best, or a middle-of-the-pack team would have to receive positive effects at home and negative effects on the road. That seems a little more likely to me. And I'd done some research on this. You guys guys like Matt Holliday, Dexter Fowler, Seth Smith, uh, Chris Iannetta, they left Coors Field and they improved on the road. So what's kind of fun about this now, this is all like stuff I'd done a couple years ago. Chris Iannetta had left the Rockies, and he came back last year. He was with Colorado from 20, uh, 2006 to uh, 2011, left, came back in 2018. And it's really hilarious if you look at his home and road splits every single year, the same pattern came back last year. Uh, I tweeted this out if you want to see the whole chart. But what's really interesting is if you look at his uh, years away from the Rockies with the Angels and with Seattle and with Arizona, he was a better hitter on the road every single year. And with Colorado, he's a better hitter at home every single year. And really the takeaway here is his road OPS when he's with Colorado is 686. And his road OPS with those three other teams is 793. So toss out Coors Field entirely. That's an enormous difference. And I think smart teams get this. They understand this. And the Yankees are not necessarily going to be fooled. They you know they sort of see a little bit... Um... 
maybe see a little undervalued asset here. I mean, it is, it is interesting that the uh, he got the exact same deal that Daniel Murphy got. And they're so similar. From the Rockies. Basically replacing him on the roster. And I think they do see a little bit of Murphy in here. He's obviously, you know, he's, he's a better fielder for sure, and he's not lefty. Um, but if you look at the underlying metrics for LeMahieu, he kind of hits the ball shockingly hard. If you look at the last three seasons and you look at everybody, you had 250 batted balls. So this is 439 guys. Uh, his hard hit rate was tied for 33rd of 439, better than Kyle Schwarber, better than Freddie Freeman. And if you're wondering why he hasn't been more powerful, it's because he's an extreme ground ball hitter. Uh, his ground ball rate of 54% is tied for 41st, but that has been declining over the last few years. And even more interesting to me is what happens when he's in Yankee Stadium. This is a guy who, for much of his career, was an extreme opposite field hitter you may remember him as the guy where uh the diamondbacks put all three of their outfielders to the right side the Padres, the Padres, the Padres were the first team to do it and the yeah. diamondbacks even took it like to the next level right because if you look at the years 2015 to 2017 on balls in the air he had a 56 percent opposite field rate the most of any right-handed hitter second in baseball behind joe mauer it's what he does he goes opposite field um in 2018 that dropped to 41 percent and so i'm not really sure what the takeaway is here because in theory okay guy hits the ball hard good Guy hits the ball more in the air, good. Guy starts to pull the ball more, good. That's like the Brian Dozier story, right? That's home runs. But maybe in Yankee Stadium, I do want a righty to go opposite field in the air. You do, but you – I mean, in the air, yes. But, like, the thing is that right field is so small that, like, there's actually not that much room to, like, dink the ball in there. Granted, Derek Jeter did that for years, and Jeff right. Sullivan wrote a piece of fan graphs about how – Similar. Peter Mayhew may look familiar to Yankees fans because – his hitting approach is pretty similar, but like I feel like defenses have gotten much more sophisticated even in like the three years since Jeter retired. So I feel like at Yankee Stadium, there are shifts you could do that basically leave like the DJ LeMayhew of old, the like extreme oppo guy, basically no place to put the ball unless it's over the fence. Oh, I mean, I'd be fascinated to see it. And just going back to the infield for a minute. This was a really, I'd say, below-average defensive infield with Gregorius Hurt, right? Like, I don't know that Torres is that great of a shortstop. I have no idea what to make of Tulowitzki. And Duhar really can't play third at all. Lenny, who's a very good glove. And I think they needed somebody who could field the ball. So even just that by itself, it makes sense. Um, a better way to do that would be to get Manny Machado. <laughs> so he could play, you know, he could play a little bit of defense. I mean, to be clear, Lemayhu has not played a position other than second base since 2014. So it's been a while. I, I think that's my takeaway here is like the Yankees, Yankee fans who don't like this uh, either care about like the course field splits or they're just mad at him for not being Manny Machado. Like I still think the deal up by itself is fine. He's a good player. You always want good players. And I'm interested to see if they can unlock a little more of what he has. Uh, and then, we'll, well, he could be, he will definitely get more attention than the typical guy who leaves Coors Field. Yeah. Um, so we'll get a very good sense. I mean, to me, if, if Matt Holiday didn't convince you that, like, how Coors Field can, like, yeah, Dexter screw Fowler, you, look at these guys. But, like, you know, Holiday went to the Cardinals and basically was as good as he ever effective. His, his like, his uh, adjusted stats, his OPS plus, weight runs created plus, was basically the same as it was in Colorado. It just was like the the shape of it was different. Right, right, it was right. less like imbalanced home road. I, I appreciate that you're looking over his uh, brief two months in Oakland between there, which led to my favorite contract stipulation ever where he had a one-team no-trade clause <laughs> where he didn't want to go back to Oakland. Um, Bryce Harper, you may have heard Bryce Harper. He's in the news. Still hasn't signed with anybody. I'm sorry. I wish I had better news for you on that. He hasn't. Uh, but, you know, last year he got off to kind of a lousy start, and then he was really good in the second half. Crushed the ball like he always does. And there were some interesting comments uh, the other day from Nationals hitting coach Kevin Long with uh, Jim Ducat and Mike Farron on MLB Network Radio that I thought we really needed to dig into. Uh, so let's take a minute and listen to what Kevin Long had to say. 
So, you know, when I, when I think about it, I, I, you know, I really believe that um, he, me, his father, everybody involved kind of got caught up in the launch angle stuff. And he was literally trying to hit the ball in the air way too much. Um, and we started simplifying. We started calling them boring line drives. Let's go do some BLD work, we'd say. And it, and it, was, the most, it was the most boring cage work you've ever seen. Um, but it translated. It translated into the game. And uh, basically, he went back to uh, what he was and what he was doing prior to trying to lift the ball. Um, and, and sometimes uh, you, you try things um, and, and to see if there is a better method. Uh, in this case, it wasn't. And I think Bryce is going to be better for it. Um, I think he's better for it moving forward. And he even says it. Um, that uh, I know and I became a better hitter this year despite all the struggles. So I think that got kind of construed as, you know, launch angle is bad, and when you stop launch angle, you will be better. Um, and I feel like there are some people who are just predisposed to wanting that to be true. I also feel like Kevin Long maybe has kind of a misconception about him. Like, he's the guy who helped Daniel Murphy become Daniel Murphy, right? But it, And, and remember when Granderson got to the Yankees? Yeah, oh, and Granderson, like, right. When Granderson got to the Yankees, he was sort of like, like you know, like, Hit the ball in the gaps. Like right. he, like, he like had 18 triples one year when he was in the Tigers. He comes to the Yankees, he becomes dead pull, yeah. fly balls in the right field line and completely turned his career around. There's a difference between don't. And that was all Kevin Long. Yes. There's a difference between don't hit the ball on the ground and hit everything in the air. And I know it sounds like those are two sides of the same coin, but it, it's really not. Like line drives are great. Hit line drives. Fly balls are good too, uh, but just don't hit it on the ground. Like that's the most important part. And I was curious about that, or more accurately, Matt, you were very curious about that. You know, did. Harper's turnaround kind of coincide with, you know, trying not to hit the ball in the air anymore. Well, I figured this is pretty easy to dig into. So let's do that. First of all, I split everything from June 20th and June 21st on because that's when he really bottomed out. He had a bad game on June 20th, and that was the low point of his season. So 314 plate appearances through June 20th. He was hitting 209, 347, 462. That is still a 111 weighted runs created plus, where 100 is league average. So it tells you a little something about Harper that everyone's losing their minds, and he was still a slightly was, above he average. He's still hitter. doing damage. I mean, yeah. look at that. I mean, like, to, to slug 462 with a 209 average. Yeah. When he was putting the ball in play, he was doing damage, and he was walking a ton. Right. So bad Bryce Harper is still good Bryce Harper. Uh, from June 21st on, crushed the ball in 381 plate appearances. He had 283, 430, 525. That's a 154 weighted runs created plus. From that point on, he had the 11th best. Uh, batting line in baseball right behind Max Muncie, Ronald Acuna, and Matt Carpenter, who did basically but hit home runs for like five straight months. So he was he was the, the Bryce Harper that, you know, if you're signing him this offseason, that's the Bryce Harper you're hoping you're going to get. Yeah, exactly right. And okay, so you, you hear those comments from his hitting coach and you see those numbers and you think, well, I'm about to see an enormous difference in launch angle. And I'm I'm skeptical about this. I'm, I'm skeptical about the outcomes, right? Like I fully believe that maybe he went in there and changed his approach and didn't try to hit the ball as high and tried to hit it and, you know, maybe that changed his outcomes, but I don't actually see any of this in the numbers, right? Uh, we split this into before and after. June 20th is our, our break point here. Before, when he was not going so well, he had a 39% ground ball rate. After, it was 40%. No big deal. Uh, before, he had a 39% fly ball rate, and that turned into 37%. And, you know, before and after, he had an equal 22% line drive rate. There's really no change there. Uh, the launch angle lowered slightly. The average launch angle. Yes, 14.7 degrees down to 13.2. It's not nothing. It's not a huge difference. And um, as we've discussed a lot of time on the show, like average launch angle isn't necessarily like, right. you know, but, like but, everything above 
everything above like 40 degrees isn't out and everything below you know zero degrees isn't out so it's sort of like a lot of time it doesn't really matter well i'm i'm glad you brought that up because i broke it down into by month right so his monthly average launch angle april was nine that's pretty low for him may was 20 and that april he was pretty good again because he's always he's like for his yeah. career, he's ridiculous in April. And then May was 20. And okay, he was really not great in May, so maybe that is something to it. And then uh, pretty consistent after that, 14, 15, 11, 14. Um, so if you break it down by month, okay, I see something there. But I, I really do think this is about approach because if you look at all the other stuff that changed, you do see some real actual changes here. Um, before, he was striking out 23% of the time after 26%. That means he struck out more and was better. That is a thing you can do. Uh, he walked 17% of the time before, 20% after, more white, more walks and more strikeouts. So that's interesting. Um, there are definitely some changes here. The, the number one thing I noticed that he did change, it wasn't that he hit the ball harder. He had a 45% and 46%, no big deal. He definitely used uh, all fields more. And I think this might be a reaction to the shift in some way. You know, Before, he pulled the ball 45% of the time, went oppo 24%. That changed to 40% full and 32% oppo. So a conscious decision to beat the shift. I don't know, but it would certainly make sense. Uh, he also was more selective. He had a chase rate early on of 29% that dropped to 23. Swing percentage went down from 47 to 43. And interestingly, I don't know if this actually made a difference. He was seeing more fastballs thrown harder. Uh, 51% fastballs before 54 after 93 miles an hour up to 93.8 miles an hour. So I don't think it's as simple as, oh, he stopped hitting for a launch angle. He's, you know, hit the ball more on the ground. But I can certainly see a change in approach that may have impacted him positively, if that's kind of what he was going. Yeah, the the, the opposite field thing is definitely interesting, and I think there's also you know I think there's you know there's something to be said. There's there's so much of like the psychology of hitting that we can't really you know that's kind of you can't really put your finger on, and there's no way that like Bryce Harper went and said, "Oh, I'm gonna try and hit the ball on the ground." But it's possible he said, you know, there was slight adjustments he made that were like more geared towards hitting line drives, and his swing is predisposed to sort of hitting line drives and fly balls. Anyway, and he just sort of found that like slight variation, um, and took off. You know, launch angles become sort of this like dirty word, which is just kind of silly it, for a variety. It's of reasons. so funny. Players and and coaches don't use it that much, and even I don't use it that much. I feel like the people who don't like it are the ones who use it all the time. But it, I wish I had the numbers in front of me, but I didn't get a chance to get to them. When Harper had that monster season in 2015, right? MVP, like amazing, incredible year. He didn't really like stand out with monster exit velocity. No, not at all. Hard hits rate, and it was kind of surprising. Like it was, I remember we were talking about it that year, and that was the first year, and you know we still didn't have a lot of the uh, expertise yet, and we were trying to figure out, you know, why was this happening, right? And I think one of the uh, the theories at the time was that he was like maybe getting perfect backspin on his ball, right? And was getting some extra carry that way. And I don't know, maybe he was attempting to do that and it just screwed up a swing. Like now we're trying to get a little bit too deep into his head, but that always stood out to me that year. Like he was not having Aaron Judge exit velocities. He's not Giancarlo Stanton, but he had you know, historically very, very good year. Yeah, no, it's uh, I'm, I think there's, there's definitely this feeling in like, in, you know, of all baseball fans that like, it's, like the true superstar Hall of Famer is still is still lurking there, and we will see it uh, at uh, at some point. I just actually just pulled up the numbers in 2015. His average uh, exit velocity was 91.2 miles per hour, which that's slightly above average. Uh, yeah, average is usually like 88 points. Which something. ranked 28th in baseball between. You ready for this? 2015, man. That's a long time ago. Ryan Howard and Chris Carter. Oh, those are 
Those are definitely some names you just brought up there. <laughs> We're both out of baseball. But, yes, that year, Stanton was one, Miguel Sano was two, Cabrera was three, Ortiz four, Trout five, Cruz, Gritchick, Ryan Braun, Donaldson, Goldschmidt, and down at 28th was, uh, was Bryce Harper. On from one guy who uh, kind of got off to a rough start last year and then crushed to another, Marcelo Zuna. I think we talked about him a lot last year. I think I w- when I ranked my left fielders last winter for MLB Network, I think he was my number one guy. And he did not get off to a good start in St. Louis. Uh, he, in 2017, when he was still with Miami, had a really great season. 376 on base, 548 slugging, 37 home runs. He goes to St. Louis, 325 on base, 433 slugging, 23 homers. Um, of anybody who had 400 plate appearances in both season, he had one of the 10 largest drops in slugging percentage. He had one of the seven largest drops in OPS. And I think everybody thought they knew the answer was they knew he had a bum shoulder. Remember, he couldn't throw like at all. I think, I mean, his, I mean, we've, we've talked about this before on the show. Like his, his like uh, velocity on his throws has dropped precipitously over the years. Like there's some, I mean, it's, he's now in like Chris Davis, Chris with a K Davis territory. There were, there were games where I can't remember if it was when Tommy Pham was playing center or Harrison Bader, where you could see the center fielder like going over there to try to get the ball just so he wouldn't have to throw it back in. Um, And it was, it was serious enough that he did end up having a shoulder procedure in October. Right. So this clearly didn't get better, but it was interesting to me. And it kind of was all season long. If you look at the underlying metrics between his very good season and his disappointing season, nothing seemed like it changed that much. Identical 45% hard hit rate in both seasons. Identical 47% ground ball rates in both seasons. He actually struck out less in 2018. I uh, walked a little less as well. In 2017, he was in the 84th percentile of expected weighted on base, with a, which accounts for amount of contact and quality of contact. In 2018, that dropped all the way down to 80th percentile. So it, it was like a big thing with Cardinals fans all year. How could a guy be underperforming by this much and still, like, hit the ball hard. And so I think we finally have some sort of an answer here. Um, part of the reason here is he actually was much better in the second half. The first half was real rough. 309 on base, 385 slug, 10 homers. He basically hit, like, Jordy Mercer or Tucker Barnhart. Those are not names you want for your power-hitting left fielder. Second half, 351 on base, 506 slugging, 13 homers, 857 OPS. He hit, like, Javi Baez and Matt Carpenter. That's much better. Um, but again, we knew the shoulder was bad. It is. It is his his back shoulder, his yeah. right shoulder. You would think. I mean, granted, I'm not. Uh, I wouldn't discount that as a factor, but like I would certainly think the the front shoulder would have you know a bum left shoulder would affect a right handed hitter more in terms of power than a bum right shoulder. But I could be wrong. So the, the, one of the other things you think of is when you see a guy underperforming this much, is you think, okay, maybe it's uh, unfortunate outcomes. It's bad luck, right? Maybe you know great defensive plays and he's getting robbed of homers, and there may be some small amount to that uh, in. 2018, he actually had 46 barrels, uh, more than the 44 he had the previous year. Barrels are like the perfect combination of exit velocity and launch angle. Uh, But in 2017, 40 of his 44 barrels fell for hits. And in 2018, only 30 of his 46 barrels fell for hits. He made 16 outs on barrels. That was the second most in all of baseball behind only Nick Castellanos. Uh, who obviously lost some to deep center field in Detroit, but I think had more on the road when we looked this up. Yeah, we talked about this. That's yeah. a weird thing entirely else. Um, but Marcelo Zuna, uh, you know, lost a lot of value. He had these high-value batted balls that turned into outs. And I thought, okay, that's interesting. So I watched all 16 of them, expecting to see some incredible diving plays, and I really didn't. They were all, like, right at the guy, like, perfect positioning, or it just died on the warning track. And, you know, certainly he hit the ball hard and just didn't get the same kind of production from it, which you think, okay, maybe there's something that we're not measuring with the shoulder that's costing him a little bit of production. Here's what I found. Uh, 
you know, how do you have such a good hard hit rate and the same ground ball rate and take such a big step back? And there's two things here. The first is that when he did hit the ball hard, those hard hit balls, more of them were on the ground. 7% of his hard hit balls were grounders in 2017. 13% of his hard hit balls were grounders in 2018. So he's getting less value from the same amount of hard hit balls. But what I think is the most telling thing is he's always been kind of a pull power hitter. The majority of his home runs have been to left field. And what I did is I looked at the average distance in feet just on fly balls and line drives to left, to center, and to right. And from 2017 to 2018, he actually gained a distance to right field, and he gained a distance to center field. But in left field, he dropped 42 feet of difference uh, of distance. Uh, he had averaged 357 feet to left field in the previous year and 315 feet. That feels like some home runs you've lost. And 357, that's for an average fly ball yeah. to left field, that's a big That's a big number. That is a big boy number. Um, so you can easily imagine you've just dropped 42 feet of average distance. Now your home runs are turning into outs or singles or whatever. And that's a big deal for him. Um, and I was still kind of confused, though. Like, okay, that, I could certainly see that being a shoulder thing, right? But the shoulder didn't get better, and he was still more productive in the second half. How did that possibly happen? Well... He did actually miss some time later in the year. So from the All-Star game uh, until August 22nd, which is when he went on the disabled list, he was actually doing pretty pretty well. Uh, 347 on base, 474 slugging. Had a quarter zone shot in the shoulder. Came back September 2nd. For the rest of the year, hit 355 uh, on base uh, with a 551 slugging. Mashed the ball. And you might think, okay, September, expanded rosters, you know, the 25th guy on the roster pitching. Well, he homered off of Josh Hader and Ross Stripling and Shane Green. I mean, these are legitimate major league pitchers. And I guess the point Josh Hader didn't give up a lot of home runs last year. No, and I guess the point here is if you believe in Marcelo Zuna before he got to St. Louis, as I did, and you think that the shoulder issue could be solved by this this injury, then I'm kind of in on the Cardinals. I mean, they got Paul Goldschmidt in the middle of the lineup now, and Marcelo Zuna, and you know I love Harrison Bader and you know Matt Carpenter, obviously. Like this could be a really interesting team. The top of that lineup is a really good line. Like Carpenter, DeJong, Goldschmidt, Ozuna. Like that's you know, top four, whatever Whatever you want to say, like that's legit top four. Then you get this, then you get into some you know question marks: Fowler, Yadi Molina, Colton Wong, Harrison Bader. But you have Jorko on the bench. You got Jose Martinez on the bench. Although oh, I, Jose I, Martinez! I don't know if Jose Martinez is going to be on the team. I know, so. but we've been saying that for months, and he's still there. I guess because they, I mean, they know he can hit. They're not giving him yeah. away. But uh, that you know, when you factor in what should be a better Ozuna and you know Paul Goldschmidt being on the team now. This offense is a lot more dangerous. Uh, and they've added Andrew Miller to the bullpen, which I liked a lot. And Alex Reyes is supposed to be back. You know, the Cubs haven't done, like, anything. And, uh, you know, the Brewers are still really good. And they, adding Yasmani Grandal is a pretty that, good that's thing. A, that's, a nice, that's a nice get for them. Yeah, I mean, that's going to be a fun division. It's like, I keep thinking, like, I'm happy with what the Reds are doing because the Reds are, like, making some moves to improve. But they still might be the fifth best team in that division. Like, that's a tough division. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about the NL East being the toughest division. But the NL East has won legitimately bad team yeah whereas nl central does not even the pirates are not a bad team the reds are not a bad team no not at all you know there's so it's like that's actually one to five i think that's the best best division yeah i, agree. I mean i think the in the any of those teams would probably finish second in the al central um well <laughs> yeah maybe yeah like, i'm not huge on what the pirates are doing i didn't like the chris archer trade but they still have a lot of talented guys there yeah i mean you know uh our matt kelly wrote a piece from mlb.com this week about the pirates rotation like whatever you think about the chris archer trade that rotation's interesting. It's it's got some upside. Well, I guess uh, I'm trying to like who's the, oh they traded Nova right? Yeah, but they've got Archer, they've got Tyon, oh, Tyon, right? Um, and they got a couple. You know, they've got uh, Mitch Keller coming up. They've got yeah. there's it's uh, it's it's an interesting group. Would it look good with uh, Tyler Glass now? I think. But. Yes, probably. 
Uh, the final thing I want to talk about is uh, we've we've made a slight. Don't forget our, our uh, Hall of Fame uh, ballot oh, to close in. The second to last thing I want to talk about before we uh, throw out our Hall of Fame ballots because that's going to be announced uh, in uh, a couple of days is uh, you know we've got a lot of things planned that we're going to make for Statcast uh, before opening day. We're talking about infield defense and route running and all this stuff, and there's some small changes to it. And I think this counts as a small change. People have asked me for a while, uh, when are you going to account for batter speed in hit probability or expected weighted on base? And the answer is now, or more accurately, earlier this week. Uh, If you look at the expected weighted on base or hit probability numbers that you can find on Baseball Savant, they do now account for batter speed. So I thought we should take a minute to at least explain what that means. Uh, Most importantly, speed is not taken into account on every single batted ball, because who really cares how fast you are when you hit a pop-up or a home run? It doesn't matter. Uh, it's only counting for balls that are topped, which is our definition for essentially ground balls, or weekly hit. But uh, even those with a, a distance, a maximum distance of 120 feet and a maximum launch angle of 60, we're only trying to get to the balls where speed actually matters. It's about 31% of batted balls from last year. So I'll call it a third. And the way this works is uh, this is a, a very high-level, oversimplified estimate. Our, our data scientist, Travis Peterson, has a much more complicated version of this that he will hopefully be posting soon. Um, every one foot per second of sprint speed that you are faster, you gain about 2% of hit probability. That may not sound like a lot, but if you go from very slow to very fast, like let's say Albert Pujols to Byron Buxton, it's like 14 or 15% right there. And that's that's a bigger deal because obviously those two guys hit the same kind of ground ball. One of them is far more likely to turn it into a hit than the other. Uh, so I can tell you a little bit about the range, and the number is not huge here in terms of what the change is. So, for example, last year, the expected batting average range effect uh, for hitters was plus 14 points. That's the most for uh, uh, Cattell Marte to minus 15 points for Pablo Sandoval. Uh, since you know these are almost entirely singles, we're talking about expected weighted on base range is about the same. Uh, it's about you know plus 10 or minus 10 on both sides. And I thought it was uh, it was interesting to point out. People are going to say, well, why Marte? Why is he the most? You know, he's fast, but he's not elite fast. And it's true. He gained plus 14 points with a 28.7 feet per second sprint speed. Billy Hamilton only gained six points with a 30.1 feet per second sprint speed. And the answer to that is simple. Marte put a bunch more balls on the ground or weekly hit or in our categories. If you just look at ground ball percentage, he had a 51%. Hamilton only had a 38%. So it's very simple. There were more balls where speed could have played an impact. Uh, we do actually include it for pitchers as well, but you know, 98% of guys are between like one or two points. It evens out pretty well. Uh, the guys who got hurt the most, very unsurprisingly, the slowest catchers in the world, like Grandal loses 10 points of expected batting average. Uh, you know, Justin Bohr, Kendris Morales, like you can probably guess who the slow guys I'm talking about are. But the point is, the spread here is, you know, about 10 to 15 points either way. Uh, I don't think it's going to have a huge impact, but it will have some impact. Uh, it will help, you know, maybe more adequately account for the slower guys who seem to always like underperform or the faster guys who overperform. So that's really interesting. Uh, it's all up on Savant now. Please check it out and let us know what you think. Yeah, looking at the list now, one of the names that jumps out to me actually is Christian Yelich as a gainer. Um, yeah, yeah. He was the MVP. A lot and of ground like, balls, though. Right? Exactly. He does yeah. a lot of ground balls. He was the National League MVP. And like, but he's also a guy who, you know, it's, it's, uh, he, the, players his broad skill set he kind of he gains from speed in a way a lot of like you know typical like you know slugger mvp candidates type often don't yeah and and i'm just looking at the other list like miguel cabrera is a guy who always pops up as underperforming because he hits the ball hard and doesn't quite get there well this will drop him a little bit because obviously he's not running things out all right finally uh hall of fame ballots are going to be announced tuesday tuesday is that right tuesday uh, uh, yes, Tuesday evening on MLB Network, I believe at uh, 6 p.m. Uh, Eastern time. Okay. So, yeah, you you tweet out your ballot the other day. Um, 
You're you're in what your third year in the BBWA? Uh yes. So that means you will be able to vote for the Hall Seven class. Seven years. Class, is that the one that will go in in yeah. the class of twenty? Well, my first year was twenty sixteen, so I'm not sure if I have to complete that year or not to get to the next year, but sometime in that range. Yeah, I guess this was my this was my first year, so I don't know if that means that I would get to vote in the. Uh, it know. is fun to think about who those guys might be, right? Like, I, I think for me, Adrian Beltre will be in, but I might get like a Miguel Cabrera, maybe. Um, years from now, I guess maybe I'll stick around for more. I think I was Miguel Cabrera was the first name that came to mind for for you, maybe for, for me. Yeah. Anyway, um, so there's th- there's three locks, right? Like we all know, Mariano Rivera is getting in, and we all think Halliday and Edgar Martinez, and then Cena is on the edge. The, that's like the, the 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 Hall of Fame tracker. Take nothing away from uh, Ryan Thibodeau and his his team now because he yes. has a squad. What they do is awesome. It's it's compelling. It, it it drives a ton of conversation this time of year. But there's no question it has sucked a lot of the drama out of the announcement. Like that's true. In, in years past, they're def- like everyone knew Mo, Mo getting in is no secret. There would have been drama around Halliday and Edgar. Yes, and there's not really going to be any drama around them. All right, well, you have my list in front of you. I don't have my list in front of you. So I guess uh, I had 10 guys on my list, and as every single year, it's ridiculous. You can only vote for 10, and you can't simply do an up-down yes-no for these guys who've managed to even get on the ballot. So I would have voted for more than 10 if I could, and I would have considered being the guy who left off Mariano Rivera to fit on somebody else. I don't care if he gets in unanimously or if he gets 99.4%, but I also wouldn't want to be like the only guy, you know? Exactly. That's the thing. I told, anyway, I'll, I will read you Mike's ballot and I will critique it afterwards and tell him why okay. he's wrong about certain guys. Oh, cool. Cool, cool. Um, uh, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Marion Rivera, Roy Halladay, Edgar Martinez, Scott Rowland, Larry Walker, Todd Helton, Mike Messina, and Manny Ramirez. Ten names. I'm Ten honest. names. Um, I agree with you. I Honestly, if I were voting this year, I would be very tempted to not vote for Mo just to keep someone else on. But I wouldn't want to like get like it wouldn't be worth the hassle in my like personal life. No, to, like, it'd, be, it'd be okay if I was like one of two. I could live with or, that. Or, but if I actually like, don't, you want to be like one of like ten. I just don't want to be one of one. Exactly. Now there are on on Ryan Thibodeau's tracker, he's at hundred percent. But there were uh, there was some report that there was this Latin American writer who had not submitted his ballot yet, so he's not on the tracker, who said he was not going to leave, he was not going to include Rivera, uh, but not for this reason, but because he didn't think closers deserved to be in the Hall of Fame. That's an entirely different conversation, but it is possible, and I would say almost likely Rivera does not get 100%. I mean, it, I mean, I don't really care. No, I don't. But I actually think it's like actually kind of silly that like, Greg Maddox... Ken Griffey Jr., Pedro Martinez, far more deserving of being the unanimous guy. Yeah. I love Mario Rivera. Well, he's, that's, he's still closer. This is exactly how I feel. Like, he obviously deserves to be in. I just don't really care for him to be the first guy who gets 100%. Who did you vote? Who uh, did you vote? Would you vote? I mean, I think the, 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 where I might have differed from you is I might have, I think I, looking at what you have now, the, the two guys who I would definitely be on the fence about would be, um, I think the number one would be Helton. I think I might switch in Schilling for. Helton, I, I find you know I'm I'm sort of like I have a hard time voting for Messina and not Schilling. They're like yeah, very similar in so many ways. Sure. Um, same era, consistent. Both had postseason success. Like it's to me, it's um that that's one of those where I sort of have a hard time doing him, but not the other guy. I'm all in on Larry Walker. To me, he's sort of like the next Tim Raines. I think that there's going to be a groundswell that he's going to get in. You know, before I'm starting to see how many years he has left here. Um, I don't know if he's going to get in. I feel like he should. Um, I know this morning you were like all up on Lance Berkman for a minute, but I guess I'm working on only has one more year after this, so maybe not. Yeah, I, th- I think it's crazy that Lance Berkman is this far, one point one percent of the vote. Fewer, fewer votes than Michael Young, as I think you. A, out. a career 
OBP above 400, granted, in a juiced offensive, offensive environment. Didn't have 2,000 hits. That's, not that, a 2,000 that hits. dooms him for And three, 366 home runs. So, like, the counting stats are not there. But, man, he was... He was really good. Like, and if you go by, like... And he played a decent center field for a while. It's kind of hard to, like... <laughs> you know, you, you'll, you'll tell kids one day that uh, Lance Bergman <laughs> played center field. But, you know, you could play a lot of games with him on, like, you know, career war, he's ahead of XYZ. And just, I don't know, I'm, I'm not saying he is a Hall of Famer, but, you know... Oh, I'm saying he's not going to be all fair. He's always definitely not. Yeah. Uh, it's just it's crazy that he's going to be a, a one and done. But then again, you know, this is where Harold Baines just got in, and Ugh. I think that the uh, on the uh, the veterans committee. So I think there could be a lot of players. This is where the ten man limit kind of gets you. So anyway, so I think that that'd probably be the one place that I differ. I would have a, I think that from a baseball history standpoint, I have a, also have a hard time leaving Sammy Sosa off. Um, I think Sammy Sosa has like a place in baseball history that. It's kind of crazy to me how much he's sort of just been like. I mean, I know why, yeah. but just sort of like been bumped aside of the conversation of baseball history. The dude hit six hundred and something home runs, and the '98 season was the most fam- like one of the most famous athletes in the world. Um, so I think that there's something to be said from like that that standpoint. That it's sort of a uh, it's a little bit sad that he's just sort of been like brushed aside from from history. I think it's insane that Scott Rowland has fewer votes than Omar Vizquel. I think that is the height of lunacy. That is also the title, I want to say. Um, I guess we'll find out on Tuesday, and then we will find out in seven to ten years when you and I hopefully get back. I, I mean, basically, you know, as we said, Edgar Mariano, Halliday basically locks. Messina will probably, my guess he's at 80% now. He'll probably end up in the low 70s, and he'll get in Yeah, those next are the only year. four guys who have a chance, I think. I don't think anybody else really. And I'm trying to think of who could go on the. Well, Jeter's next year, right? And I think he's got one more year. Well, I'm looking it up right now quickly. Yeah, I don't know. I, I do think you're right about the tracker, though. Like, it's a great resource, and it's cool because, you know, you want to see, like, which way the tides are blowing, but also how much does that affect the vote you make. But I, I also think it kind of um, incentivizes people to put a little more thought and effort into their ballot than they might have in years past. You were right. Uh, Jeter comes on next year, and, like, he is the only yeah. first-time candidate. Like, number two, number two, I think, by war is Yeah, Eric Chavez definitely voting Eric Chavez. No, number two by actually no, no sorry, I, um, I take it back. There are actually a couple. I'm, uh, I'm looking at this incorrectly. The other interesting names they have no chance, but are really interesting. Uh, Bobby Abreu, who oh, that's an underrated candidate, has, has a has a legitimate Hall of Fame case, but will get probably could get one and none. Jason Giambi, Cliff Lee, Cliff Lee is you know more in the uh, Johan Santana of burn fast and bright, but at his peak was an all time great player. Just too brief. And then Rafael Farcal, Eric Chavez, Josh Beckett. Alfonso Soriano, Paul Conurco, Brian Roberts. Paul Conurco is going to end up getting more votes. He's probably going to end up getting like the third most votes of any of these guys because he was like really popular and well liked. He's got no shot. He's got no shot. So it's going to be Jeter. Jeter and probably Messina. Oh, and probably Messina. Okay. Well, I'm interested to see how it turns out uh, next week. This is our show for this week. This is the MLB.com Statcast podcast. Thanks for listening.